Welcome to Integrative Oncology Talk, where we discuss the latest science and opinions from leading voices in integrative oncology. Integrative oncology utilizes complementary therapies and lifestyle strategies to help those affected by cancer using personalized approaches and evidence-based recommendations. This podcast is hosted by Dr. Santosh Rao, a medical oncologist and integrative oncologist, and Dr. Judith Lacey, a supportive care and integrative oncology physician. With support from the Society for Integrative Oncology, an international multidisciplinary organization whose mission is to advance the science and education of integrative oncology worldwide. The views expressed on this podcast do not necessarily reflect views of the participants' workplace or SIO and are not meant to offer medical advice. The information, opinions, and recommendations in the podcast are for general information only. Before making any changes in your healthcare or lifestyle, please discuss with your healthcare provider. Welcome to Integrative Oncology Talk today, and uh, I'm thrilled to be joined by my colleague, Claudia Witt. She's a medical doctor, epidemiologist, research methodologist who's internationally recognized for her work. She also holds an MBA with a focus on healthcare management. Um, She is a full professor uh, of medicine at the University of Zurich, where she serves as vice dean for interprofessionalism and internationality. Uh, and she's also the director of the Institute for Complementary and Integrative Medicine at the University Hospital Zurich. In addition, she is co-director of the Digital Society Initiative and co-director Citizen Science Center of the University of Zurich. Uh, today, we'll be talking with uh, Dr. Witt about defining integrative oncology uh, competencies, uh, collaborative, and regarding the interprofessional team in integrative oncology, education, research, focusing on knowledge, uh, incentives, and the value of implementation science methods, and integrative oncology, including during COVID-19 in Switzerland and Germany. Hi, Claudia. Thank you so much for joining us today. I know we're on very different time zones, so thank you for accommodating Hi, Santos. It's a great pleasure to be here. Well, thank you. Um, I'm just going to get right into it because there's so many things that I want to talk to you about today. And uh, I outlined some of them, but I think this is going to be a really rich conversation. I'm going to start with something really important to all of us at Society for Integrative Oncology or in the field. And that is this definition that you were kind of leading alongside the Society for Integrative Oncology on, uh, on basically what integrative oncology means. So can you tell us about, about, first of all, what that definition is, um, and then kind of uh, how you came to decide on some of the particulars, and then we can discuss. Yeah. Yeah. First, I have to say definitions are something really difficult and complicated. I think we all know we can spend decades on discussing what is the right definition for this field. But that's why I found it so important that uh, from SIO side, we took this point uh, forward and came to a conclusion, which I personally find is a very nice definition. And uh, we read it here. Integrative oncology is a patient-centered, evidence-informed field of cancer care that utilizes mind and body practices, natural products, and or lifestyle modifications from different traditions alongside conventional cancer treatments. 
Integrative oncology aims to optimize health, quality of life, and clinical outcomes across a cancer care continuum and to empower people to become active participants before, during, and beyond cancer treatment. And I especially like two elements in here, and one of them is a, a very clear one. So two I like, and the other one is just said, which is that it is alongside conventional cancer care, but also that we say evidence-informed. So when we think about evidence-based medicine, we know it has three pillars. At least some of us know that it has three pillars. I think most people know one pillar, the evidence from clinical research. Most people know also that the expertise of the provider plays a role. But the third one, I find a very interesting one. This is the values and beliefs of our patients. And also this should inform us in a way which treatment would be the best for the patient because and patients have beliefs, they have preferences. And we know that beliefs and preferences are part of the placebo effect because it's moderated over expectations. And when we take those into account, in addition to the specific effect that we have in a treatment and we want to have specific effects, we add also a placebo effect and our patients just have larger effects. So this is something we include here and the other part is really the empowerment of people. Because here we get into the constructs of self-care, of self-efficacy, which play an important role during cancer care. And I'm so happy that we have integrated this here in the definition. Thank you. I mean, I think most of us uh, use this definition, first of all. And it's quite all-encompassing. And I just want to delve into it a little bit more because it's such an important thing to have a definition and to to see think about who we are. Uh, I, I sometimes struggle myself when I'm talking to people because it's such a big tent, first of all. Um, we have so many different types of healthcare practitioners uh, and different voices in our field. And that's a, that's a strength, but it also makes it difficult sometimes to define um, you know, first of all, I think uh, I want to ask you about a couple of the things you just mentioned, evidence-informed. So that, uh, obviously, it, it's, it's, um, it's not a precise thing because, you know, many people say evidence-based and there's a sense that you lean on randomized controlled trials, which are very difficult, etc. Do you feel like evidence-informed can sometimes have too broad uh, a range of of uh, people's inclinations as to what that means. It could be, but on the other hand side, we also have to understand that we very often deal with the absence of evidence, especially when we talk about complementary medicine methods. And many people don't make the right distinction between having negative evidence and having just no data. Mm -hmm. And we often have to deal with no data, then we have to go to the experience or the preferences of the patients or just a judgment about safety. That's why I find evidence informed here a very good term, which still means doing the best treatment for the individual patient by taking into account the three pillars. Yeah, and, and you know, with some of our SIO-led guidelines, they definitely look at different levels of evidence and, and you know, are as informed by evidence as possible, and that's building. Um, the other thing is this empowerment. 
I, I'm only asking because sometimes I get pushback from people who are possibly not in the field. And I also see a lot of people, you know, it's such a, it's, it's such an, uh, a building movement, integrative oncology. And I think we're very welcoming and it's, it's not something we control per se, but you see a lot of people say, you know, I'm, I am an integrative provider and they may not have had training uh, in any kind of fellowship or anything where they may do research in uh, an aspect of integrative and, uh, you know, complementary therapies or whether it's lifestyle and it, it's, it becomes pretty broad. I think even this idea about empowering people, I guess what I'm asking is out of this definition, do you see this as something that's just a, a, a model of healthcare or is this something that can help define and, and kind of suggest that we're a little bit have our own field? I would think we can build here a nice bridge to the construct of self-efficacy, which plays an important role in health psychology. And uh, just when we go back into the definition of the American Psychological Association, when we talk about self-efficacy, they follow very much the idea of Bandura. And then self-efficacy refers to an individual's belief in his or her capacity to execute behaviors necessary to produce a specific performance attainment. And just thinking about patients, cancer patients who get the recommendation that they should do some physical exercise. If you get more self-efficacious, it's much easier to put this into practice. Also, when you have other symptoms like fatigue, for example, some nausea, you have the feeling you have tools which help you to overcome these symptoms. And um, that's why I think we can really partner here with health psychology and uh, work more within these health psychological constructs. And that's a big strength of our field that we are very open to do this and that we even have psychologists in the Society of Integrative Oncology. I agree. And I, I for me, I highlighted um, the two parts that I like uh, the most, which is that we utilize different traditions alongside conventional cancer treatments. To me, that's, that is one of the things that makes us unique that we can, like you said, it's sometimes it's culturally specific. How do you weave these things in at the right time mm -hmm. for the right patient? And then of course, empowering people to become active participants. I think that is really a focus for us and, and is very, very important for patient care. Um, yeah. So I wanna thank you for your work on that. You've also been working on uh, a paper that was just uh, that was just published on competencies uh, in integrative oncology. So, mm -hmm. um, you know, let's uh, I'm I'm pulling it up right here. But basically, um, competencies goes alongside you know kind of what we were talking about is that uh, what does it mean to be in the field of integrative oncology? How can we say that you're aligned with some of the um, elements that make somebody within this field, especially uh, on the evidence-informed spectrum. Um, and so you worked alongside a lot of our colleagues uh, and, uh, and, and developed this, uh, this basic paper on, on competencies. Can you talk about that? Um, and not only what went into it, but uh, how you see this, you know, kind of mapping uh, the field. Yeah, yeah. Now, I have to say this was a really important project for us, and I liked it that we had 
first the definition and then from the definition in SIO, we step forward and said, okay, there's something else we have to sort out a little bit because the field is so heterogeneous. And I think it makes an integration more difficult if people talk about different things, if the providers have different kinds of treatments and there's no clear understanding what it is really about. And the other point which we like to take into account from the beginning is an interprofessional perspective, because that's also what SIO is about. Uh, it's an interprofessional uh, association. And we thought we have to include core professions here. And so we had the medical doctors, the nurses, the psychologists, the naturopathic doctors, traditional Chinese medicine practitioners, yoga practitioners, and patient navigators and patients participating in this development. And we want to have it broad. So this means we build teams and these teams even had a broader network, which was also um, that they had partners in Europe, North America, and Asia, because we wanted to take into account some cultural differences. And the nice thing at the end was we ended up with the same core competencies for all the professions. Wow. And I'm yes, sure. Yeah, I'm going to pull that up right now, but uh, let's let's go through some of these because they're uh, they're uh, really it's a pretty long list. It's a pretty long <laughs> list, so you know, yeah. um, we end up with thirty seven of them, and uh, we did it uh, that we uh, clustered them in a very typical categorizing system. So we had eleven knowledge competencies, seventeen skills competencies, and nine on abilities. And what I personally found most interesting that it is not all about complementary or integrative medicine. Hmm. So there are some really hands-on knowledge needed, which we would call cancer one-to-one. -one. Mm -hmm. So when you go for the knowledge competencies, for example, half of them are about cancer, the diagnosis, the treatment, the patient journey. And the other half are about uh, some knowledge about complementary medicine methods. Mm -hmm. And why is this so important? Because when we think about the cancer care team and we think here, for example, about acupuncturists who are non-medical acupuncturists or non-MD acupuncturists or yoga teachers, they might not know anything about cancer, but they know very well about their complementary medicine therapy. But to really do a safe treatment to accompany the patient on his or her journey, they have to have some basic cancer knowledge. Whereas when you have a medical doctor or an oncology nurse, they won't need to add this knowledge because they have already included it in their professional training. They would need the training on complementary medicine. So this means everyone has to have the same competencies, but some already have them included in their professional trainings, others would have to have additional training here. That's on knowledge. But the skill side is also pretty interesting because when we look into these competencies, there it's a lot about how to find information, to judge about information, but also about communication and being empathic. And this is for me personally 
this is really core if you do integrative oncology, that you have communication skills, that you can also be very empathic with your patients, but also take a little bit more an eye-level communication than we often do in conventional treatment sessions. And I find this special in integrative medicine when we do these consultations. And this is also part here of the core competencies. So, Claudia, just um, th- this is very broad, and uh, I think you know really encompasses uh, what we all generally think of when we think of people who are in our field. Do you see this as you know? You mentioned kind of uh, part of the interprofessional team: yoga therapists, acupuncturists, working alongside MDs, nurse practitioners, etc. We have a. a a whole family of healthcare providers that often come together, which is our strength. You know, and everybody has different backgrounds and skills and knowledge base. Is it that the team should encompass all these competencies or, you know, is this just a general kind of, uh, you know, approach to integrative oncology where just being in the field, you have to have basic knowledge about cancer to be in the field of integrative oncology, for example. Um, you know, like, uh, obviously there are levels to this. Uh, how do you access information on integrative oncology, et cetera? Take us through, let's say, let's use the example of an acupuncturist. Um, how would a cancer center incorporate these competencies uh, and say, okay, this is how we see our uh, our field and this is how we see our, our team. And, um, you know, we want everybody to... Uh, to follow these basic competencies in in our field? So when we take this example of an acupuncturist, for example, working in a cancer clinic, so I would assume that this person would have to have basic knowledge in uh, cancer, which means a little bit the typical cancer one-to-one. So which different kinds of cancer do we have? information about the different kinds of treatments and the side effects. So that they really can accompany the patient and talk with the patient about the disease, but also realize when there are safety issues at the end. So I won't like to see an acupuncturist who has no knowledge in treating cancer patients being uh, responsible one-to-one with a cancer patient. This would not happen in my clinic, for example. I, I agree. The other thing is, Santos, the interprofessional team is an interesting aspect because that's something I realized. I did a lot of work on interprofessionalism because at our medical school, I'm the vice dean for this topic. Mm-hmm. And I don't think that there is any other area in oncology which is so badly regulated when it comes to the care team as integrative complementary medicine topics are because people have beliefs. None of the professions has really a mandatory training that they have basic knowledge in the complementary medicine therapies. And what happens at the end is a patient asks the same question, what should I do as complementary medicine um, to improve my cancer-related fatigue, for example? They might get five or six different answers. And many of these answers are not based on evidence because very often the professions even don't know the evidence. They're very often based on personal beliefs. And we have observations like this. So if we think about interprofessional teams, this might be a great topic, might be a great topic to bring the team together and make a decision 
who within the team might be the right person to inform the patient about complementary medicine treatments. In the US, this might be the cancer navigators. We don't have them so often in Europe. But here, it might not always have to be the MD. It could be also the oncology nurse, for example, or the psycho-oncologist. But these decisions have to be made. And the trainings also on complementary and integrative medicine. These could be interprofessional trainings. Well, that gets into education a little bit. Um, and I, I think you're hitting on a lot of very interesting topics within our field because we're still evolving. And I find it very interesting as a medical oncologist just how fast you know, integrative oncology is changing and we're getting more evidence, but it's hard to keep up with how fast uh, basic oncology research is going. You know, I mean, our whole field seems to be changing yeah. almost every year. Um, and I, I think a lot of this comes down to research and education um, and, and trying to keep up and, and stay, you know, be as precise as we can be using evidence um, so that we can make good recommendations that are evidence informed as best as possible. You mentioned fatigue, for example, rather mm -hmm. than this is just some anecdotal or it's based on certain beliefs, et cetera. And I, I still think that there are many things that we do that one could argue are not always evidence-based uh, per se. And yet, uh, I, I've talked about this before. Reiki is a great example in the U.S. Um, I've I, within our own organization, I think there are some people who are taking Reiki a little bit more seriously, but it's always been something that uh, hasn't really been evidence-based per se. Uh, at least at major cancer centers, they will talk about it, but it's it, it's uh, it's offered almost everywhere. I find that fascinating. Mm -hmm. So there's this element of patient care, patient demand, and uh, you know, mixed with what is safe and not safe. And then, you know, where is the evidence? And those things don't always align as as neatly as we would like them to. So I, I find that interesting. Um, I, I want to talk to you about education. Okay, so, you know, you're very involved. I, wanted, I want you to first talk about what you do personally regarding education and how um, education works in, uh, in Switzerland um, for, regarding integrative oncology and how that uh, you know, could be something that's mirrored in other places. Yeah. So I have to say, um, I personally have a great passion in training and education. And it comes from this idea that I, that I always had the understanding that I understand things best when I have to teach them which also usually makes my teachings very clearly structured, very pragmatic, and that you have something at the end which you can directly put into practice. And I started with research trainings in the beginning because I'm also a fully trained clinical epidemiologist. So it was about basic statistics, study designs, and then uh, with focus on uh, integrative medicine. But um, after this, I moved also more into clinical teachings and communication teachings. And I realized one thing that, and I speak here mainly about medical doctors, very often the request is to get knowledge in teachings. And, but we have to understand that knowledge changes the whole time. As you have already mentioned, the evidence is changing, more trials are coming up very often, there's absence of evidence. So, Learning um, all the trials 
is something I won't have to put into a teaching. That's why we do guidelines at SIO and other places. Mm -hmm. But I have to learn how I communicate a topic like this. How do I find the evidence? How do I tailor this evidence to the individual patient? And how do I understand what the real need of the patient is? And when we see the competencies we have developed here, we have put those competencies in Germany into a bigger size project, which also is then evaluated by a larger cluster randomized trial. And here we trained oncology physicians not to do integrative medicine but to inform their patients about the options and also to make real recommendations to their patients. And this, from the framework, it was addressing a time slot of 20 minutes in maximum. So something you can do as a medical oncologist when you have a good relationship with, uh, with a patient, you won't need 90 minutes for it. And um, we used nice implementation science methods here developed a whole framework and evaluated this. And uh, the film here can show you a little bit about the results. Around half of the cancer patients use complementary medicine interventions. If this is a non-monitored usage, it can result in safety issues. If we ask patients, many of them would like to get advice from their oncology physician However, many of the oncology physicians don't feel competent enough to provide this advice. To help to close this gap, we developed and tested a consultation framework with a high potential to be widely implemented. The Cocon KTO framework was developed systematically and combines a guided consultation with a custom tailored training. The manual helps physicians to provide a structured consultation within 20 minutes and to take into account patients' experiences and wishes. It also allows individual advice and a shared decision-making. The training itself combines modern e-learning modules with a two-day on-site workshop. Oncology physicians get trained to provide evidence-based advice to their cancer patients about the effectiveness and the safety of complementary medicine interventions and to provide this in a non-judgmental and empathic way. Our data showed the training was highly rated and also the participating oncology physicians had little knowledge in complementary medicine. After the training, all of them were able to implement the consultation manual. In a setting with standardized patients, they gave within 20 minutes individual evidence-based and resource-oriented recommendations. The rating of the consultations by external experts, as well as the situational judgment tests which we employed, confirmed that the learning objectives of the training were fulfilled. We assume that the implementation of the Cocon KTO framework can really lead to a better patient-physician communication on the topic of complementary medicine and that this can also improve cancer care outcomes. If you want to read more about this training or to have access to the materials, please visit our current publication in Cancer. So. Um what we did, we developed a blended learning. When I say blended learning, we mean that we have e-learning combined with a workshop. 
And in the e-learning, we were mainly focusing on knowledge. So they got an introduction into the most common complementary medicine methods. And also uh, in interaction, if it comes to herbal medicine and cancer treatments, for example. And also we got an, uh, we made an introduction into the manualized type of the consultation. Then we had a workshop and within this workshop, we were training them in having really this consultation with the patients. It was a lot of role play. And we also had standardized patients there. And uh, what was really nice that after two days of workshop and nine hours of e-learning, each of the oncology physicians was able to do a full consultation with a standardized patient. So we had participating observation, we evaluated everything, and they felt so much more self-confident. They knew where they get information. So it was not about memorizing all the details. It was really more getting into a flow. How do I do a consultation? How do I handle if a patient comes with something I've never heard about before in my life? How do I stay relaxed and still give the patient the comfort that we will have a good solution for him or her? What are the things I can always suggest to patients that they really um, strengthen their ability, felt empowered, be more self-efficacious? And um, we have also analyzed uh, a full-size cluster randomized trial and we see it on the physician level that they improved due to the training and the control group had no training. And we saw it also on the patient level. So these patients um, judged information much higher hmm. and they were also much more ready to make a decision what they want to do in integrative oncology and what they don't want to do. That's great. I, what went into the decision to, to talk to oncologists rather than, I think I feel like a lot of times when I've seen people get into this education around integrative, it always seems to be medical students or people early in their training, whereas a lot of the oncologists or people who are older, um, they never learned some of these things. And I, I find that my colleagues are very interested um, so I, I, I'm just curious as to how you decided to go to the actual trained oncologists and what their, um, you know, how, how uh, you know, interested they were. Yeah, no, it was uh, very clearly that patients wanted to talk with their oncologists about it. So there is some data about this mm -hmm. and this has been done in Germany. So we are based on the German data. And when we announced the study, it was very easy to recruit the oncologists. So we did a um, stratified recruitment. We had um, oncologists to treat gynecological patients and uh, breast cancer patients, but we had also the other medical oncologists. And we took oncologists from hospitals and those from private practice so that we had a very good mixture. But we could have trained two or uh, three times the amount of oncologists. And we had 48 who were included in the study. Wow. What, what are the attitudes like amongst uh, healthcare providers and also um, people in the community towards integrative oncology in, uh, in Germany and Switzerland? Yeah. So I would say it varies. 
And again, it depends what they think integrative oncology is because it's such a broad field. So when we talk about mind-body techniques, for example, relaxation, mindfulness, yoga, there's a great openness for this. If we talk about herbs, then I think we would have a much more diverse answer here. And uh, then when we would go in Germany into things like Reiki, this would be not accepted at all. So here we have also total uh, cultural differences between our countries. And I also work in the United States. So I know that these things are much more accepted there than they are in Germany or Switzerland. Hmm. That's interesting. Um, and then, you know, regarding education, uh, how how are you guys in, uh, incorporating that into medical school training? Or how do you feel like we should be incorporating that early in education? So I think, and I'm not talking about integrative oncology at the moment, I'm talking about integrative medicine because that's um, much broader. Mm -hmm. It uh, should be part of the medical curriculum. And in Germany, we have it in the mandatory curriculum. It's only very little hours. And we have the same in Switzerland. We have a very unique situation in Switzerland because in Switzerland, there has been a public voting. And due to this public voting, we have the term complementary medicine in the constitution of Switzerland. Wow. I think that's the only country where you have something like this. But due to the fact that it is with one sentence in the constitution, it has impact on the training of medical doctors, of pharmacists, of health professionals. And uh, in the last revision of the medical curriculum, we have it also uh, in some aspects integrated in the medical <clears throat> curriculum. And what are the things that you think would be the most important uh, to highlight in a curriculum? I think we need them to have some basic knowledge about the most common complementary medicine therapies. So every medical student has to know what acupuncture is, for example. They have to know about mindfulness and mind-body techniques, yoga, things like this, but also phytomedicine, those things which are very common locally. Hmm. And uh, they have to see that there is some evidence. They also have to see those things which might be not safe, but they also have to understand that this evidence is changing and where they can get reputable information about it. How about nutrition? So it's also training the skills to find information. How about nutrition? I mean, uh, how much nutrition are your medical students? Because I I obviously knew what the vitamins and fats and this and that, but we really didn't learn a lot about yeah. practical applications of nutrition or even exercise. It was more the physiology of it. Yeah. I totally agree with you, Santosh. I think this is a big missing part in the medical curriculum. And uh, Thinking about exercise, where we have so strong evidence, uh, not only in the field of cancer care, in most of the medical areas, um, I don't think that we have enough of it. And just uh, recommending a patient that he or she should have more physical activity is not a solution. We would also have to learn more about behavioral change techniques mm. and how we teach our patients to use them if they really want to put our recommendations into practice. And a lot of studies show that uh, healthcare providers who actually practice what they preach uh, end up more commonly 
uh, recommending exercise, for example. If you exercise yourself, you're more commonly going to recommend it. I especially think that's important in integrative oncology because a lot of what we do is nuanced, where it's not enough to just say, hey, get 30 minutes, you know, four or five days a week. Who would you recommend yoga for? Um, and, you know, who would you recommend more balanced training or, you know, there's, there's a lot to exercise is kind of a broad term, right? So, um, I think we, we use our experience in some ways and I'm finding that younger students and early in their training, they seem to be more often, uh, gaining that experiential wisdom, uh, earlier. And I think what you mentioned here is for me very much also about an authentic communication with my own patients. So for me, it's very enriching when I identify barriers with my patients to put lifestyle changes into practice, because I also share my experiences then. And uh, I have to say, since I do these mind-body medicine consultations with my patients, my lifestyle is so much better Mm -hmm. because I really would like to walk the talk. (laughs) Well, you know, I, I'm curious what you're doing now regarding during COVID. Um, you know, what have you been recommending and how have you adapted during this time? Yes. Yeah, we had a very interesting situation at our institute because we are part of the uh, university hospital. And I have a really good clinic um, clinic manager. She's like me. We are very much techies. And so when we saw something happens there, we directly um, switched into digital tools and we were able to do this within our hospital. So I would say we were the first outpatient clinic of the hospital that was able to do most of the things digital. But on the other hand side, also during the lockdown, we had not to stop the treatments because we uh, treat the oncology patients in an acute cancer center, which means patients with pain uh, with really reduced quality of life. So we were even able to do acupuncture also during the lockdown and the whole time with all the safety measures. And we realized the needs of the patients changed. So we are usually, due to the fact that we do, or that mind-body medicine is our basis for all of our treatments. The linking between mind and body was always important for us. But we had the feeling that the mental aspects became so much more important during uh, the pandemic. And they still are because we are really in the second wave at the moment in Switzerland. So when you look into our numbers, um, they are not good at all. Yeah, we're in <laughs> and our... And they have been in the first wave, they were quite okay. But now it's it's quite bad. We're in our third wave. So uh, num- numbers are, are not mm-hmm. good here either. And... Tell us a little bit about, you mentioned uh, you're a techie. Um, <laughs> I feel like you do everything. So uh, tell us a little yeah. bit about the value of digitization and how you've been able to adapt that way. Because I personally, I feel like a lot of the, um, you know, the uh, the adaptations that we've had to undergo are here to stay. You know, whether it's these kind of Zoom conversations or the digitization yeah. of some of healthcare's, uh, you know, practice. So what I realized that I can do a first consultation with a patient where I do the treatment plan and also introduce uh, relaxation techniques, introduce behavioral change techniques, I can easily do digital in a video consultation with a patient. 
But my video consultation is different than I do it face to face because the first minutes are usually very important to build up a relationship. Mm -hmm. And when I do it face to face at the moment, which also happens, then we have these masks in our face, which I don't think that I'm similarly empathic when this is covered. And I also, it's much harder for me to really judge on the mimics of my patient if I see only part of the face. On the other hand side, I see how my patient walks into the room, how they behave, which of my chairs they're using. So I already get to know them a little bit in this interaction. And this is different if we meet online. So uh, I also now use the first minutes of an online meeting to build up a relation. And a nice story of one of my patients is he was in the Swiss mountains. And so I saw this in the background and said, oh, are you in the mountains? Oh, yeah, I'm in my mountain condo. I asked, okay, is there still snow in the mountains? He said, oh, yeah, there is. Would you like to see it? And he took his laptop, went out on the balcony and showed me the beautiful mountains. And after this, the whole conversation was so much more relaxed. But I think we have really to address this issue that we are digital with each other and that there might be some personal strong. Sometimes you have the children just looking into the camera and it's something I don't ignore. I take it into account. Or when I, this is also funny. So we teach this uh, fatigue acupressure. Mm -hmm. So, and there are some points on the leg. And now doing in a camera like this, getting your leg up and showing the patient where to press, it can be so funny. Yeah. And I think <laughs> you have to be authentic with these things. And then you can have a similar amount of laughter than sitting one-to-one. -one. Yeah, it's just a little bit different. I found that it's 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 been more normal than I thought. And many of my patients will say that, you know, hey, I can see your face. I, you know, it's you yeah. forget how important that is. And yeah. like you said, sometimes they're very comfortable, almost too comfortable. I've had patients who are in their pajamas in bed. Uh, <laughs> you know, all of us have had patients without their shirt on. There's things like that. But uh, yeah. for the most part, I like the interaction that we get from that, too. Um, yeah. But we also realized because we did, uh, we evaluated our uh, digital interventions and we got some nice suggestions because it's not ideal doing this, putting up your leg and showing the acupuncture point or acupressure point there. So we now developed video animations right. of several points. And so we can use those, send them to the patients before or include them in the consultation. The same uh, with some yoga exercises or some Qigong exercises. So we have now a toolkit as those who do the consultations, and we can show things more clearly with videos and have a higher quality. I'm just curious, you know, you you, you have a pretty uh, broad program. How big is your center? And tell us a little bit about University of Zurich and the medical center. Absolutely. So Zurich has a quite unique situation because the chair for complementary and integrative medicine, which I have, is really on the same level if you have the chair for gynecology, for oncology, and also in the hospital, I'm a clinic director. It's called an institute because I don't have beds. I have only the outpatient clinic. But um, this has been in Switzerland for over 20 years, and it was due to the public who asked for it. 
And that's why it's it's not an endowed chair. It does not need fundraising. It's really part of the hospital and the university system. And this is a quite unique situation. I mean, that's great because then you're not so vulnerable. You know, I mean, I think that when it's all endowed or, you know, my program is grant funded, you always have an eye on raising more money. Yeah. Um, you know, or, or you have to I adapt. have to do my budget and I have to meet my budget. So like the oncologist or the gynecologist, I have my uh, budgetary meetings and uh, also have to bring in the revenue. But this means we can exist within the normal system and also the normal reimbursement system. And I have to say that's also a very unique situation in Switzerland because uh, complementary medicine methods are reimbursed if the doctors have an extra specialization for it. Then it's part of the basic insurance. And Switzerland has an insurance system where everyone has to have basic insurance. And then you can have also private insurance on top. And there you can have even other complementary medicine methods insured. And those, I would say, about 50% of the Swiss population have this one. So that's why you can also survive within the system by just regular billing. That's great. Yeah, we have some of that, but it's just a state-by-state -state kind of very regional thing here in the U.S. Yeah. I want to shift to uh, to another area that you're very involved with, which is research. And um, you do a lot of research yourself. And as you mentioned, you're a, an epidemiologic researcher and you also train people in research. So let's start there and talk to us first about um, your thoughts on where research is going in integrative oncology and how we can train and what we should be emphasizing in our training for people to be successful and for this field to grow the way we want it to. Yeah. This is not an easy topic, I have to say, um, because clinical research per se, and when I talk here about something like physician scientists, we all realize how hard it is to do your clinical work and do your science beside. And especially for the field of complementary integrative medicine in the United States with NIH, there is special funding. We don't have this in Switzerland, same in Germany. So we always have to apply for the normal grants. And I still see bias there if it comes to the reviews on those grants. And what can happen is that you sometimes get a very good review, but then it's not seen as most necessary to do this project because it seems not to be so important. So um, what I would suggest if someone wants to do clinical research, and I can only talk about this area because I'm not a basic researcher, you need to have proper knowledge in the methods. And this was also one of my passions to train those in the field of integrative medicine to have this knowledge and basic statistics and study designs to know which study design to use for which research question. And if you go for the normal grant calls, I would call this conservative ones, like NIH, you can't be too innovative. So you always have to be on the safe side, you know this as I know it. And getting older now in research, I have to say I find this more and more boring. Also, I know it has to be this way. I like to have more creativity. 
into my research. And that's why in my career, I enjoyed it very much to have the chance to work with John Tunis in Baltimore from the Center of Medical Technology Policy, with the Institute of Integrative Health of Brian Berman in Baltimore, where they have a scholars program and the scholars together, they can really develop out of the box ideas. Hmm. It's also what you have in the Howard Hughes grants. For example, in the United States. But this I really find fruitful in the field of integrative medicine, not thinking about these old study designs don't fit to complementary medicine. I don't believe this. I think more that we need new developments in complex interventions overall. And that's why implementation science is now the area I'm very much interested in. And luckily, I was just able at the University of Zurich to support the development of a whole new institute for implementation science. Can you uh, can you just tell some of our our listeners what what you mean by implementation science and how yeah. important that is? Yeah. So when we think about uh, research in the medical area, we have innovation. Then we have the translation, where things come more into the clinic, closer to a human being or a patient. And when we talk about implementation science, it's really about going the last mile, which means putting innovations into practice that people can really get it for their treatments. And on the other hand side, it's also reflecting from the routine care back to innovations where the priorities for new innovations should be in mm -hmm. the future. And we have a broad framework of these methods and NIH has, for example, a toolbox for this, but also the National Cancer Center. They have really a nice website on implementation science. And what I like here is that we have the combination of qualitative and quantitative research, but also that we put it more into research frameworks and think the implementation from the beginning when we design our research. That's what we have done in the study where we trained the medical oncologists. This was a pure implementation science study. Also, it was a cluster randomized trial, but it had a whole framework and mixed methods. And the nice thing is also that it is steadily developing. It's, it's not a toolbox that is closed. And now when we think about digital health, for example, another field where I do a lot of my research in, and we know when we have mobile health applications, we have a lot of data sets where we have a lot of measurement time points. And when you think in our typical trial designs, one primary outcome parameter, what is the time point when we measure it? How do we handle 200 measurements over 200 days? or sometimes several days. So we really would have to dig into new ways to analyze our data and new ways how to design our trials. And this is not about integrative medicine. This is about the needs of research and medicine overall. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, regarding, I mean, this is obviously an acute need in our field is to have high quality research and, you know, many people are, are doing, I find it interesting that a lot of people who are doing research in uh, complementary medicine are not necessarily, quote unquote, integrative uh, practitioners. That's what I have seen is it's, this is just a field that everybody seems to be getting interested in, 
uh, especially around lifestyle and other things, but even botanicals. I've seen, you know, leading kind of uh, uh, researchers at different cancer centers just decide that, yeah, let's look at that. Let's look at the mechanism, yeah. those kind of things. I think mechanism is also very important. Uh, mm -hmm. as we get into translational science. Um, tell us a little bit about training, how you're engaged with training and what we should be focused on with training uh, people who want to engage in research in this field. So I've run several research methodology courses over the years, but I also have run them for conventional doctors when I was in Germany at the Charité Medical School. Hmm. So I taught a lot of basic statistics, sample size calculation, study designs, which I always find as empowerment for a medical doctor, because when you really understand why you do a sample size calculation and what it means at the end, you feel so much more self-confident when you talk with a statistician at the end. Mm -hmm. And um, what I'm also doing with the medical students, I do a lot of critical appraisal. But for me, critical appraisal is not only talking about biases and talking about what is the best way to do the best randomized controlled trial. Because good research is not doing about the best randomized controlled trial. Good research for me is fitting the right study design to the right study question. And um, I've seen a lot of RCTs and I've done a lot of RCTs myself, which I don't find good research mm -hmm. because the study design is not really answering the study question or it's answering a study question which has no meaning for the stakeholders. And these are the patients, the physicians, politicians at the end. So most of my trainings are at the moment on comparative effectiveness research and how you find the right balance between having a good RCT but also having a meaningful RCT and there's a gray area in between and it's also it does it discussing about the most suitable outcomes which have meaning and sometimes these are more subjective outcomes also having less standardization in some of the treatments that they reflect more what happens in routine care for example but learning these tools how you come to these conclusions and we're also working with participatory research methods, meanwhile. So what I teach at the moment is so much broader than what I have taught many years ago. That's great. I mean, I like what you said about having a good RCT, for example, and meaningful meaningful uh, questions that are being answered. Rather, there's so many things being published nowadays that it's almost overwhelming, and there's uh you know, a lot of things that get published that probably don't move the needle very much. Um, so what are what's a good study that's actually going to be able to answer a question? Yeah. And I have to say, Sandosh, what I get most angry about is our underpowered randomized control trials. Mm. So what do I mean with the underpowered study? That's something where the sample size from the beginning is too small to see a meaningful result if it is there. And there are plenty out in the field of complementary medicine because there was not enough money um, to do a full-size trial. That's why sample size calculation is so important that you have also the number of patients you need to show the statistically significant and clinically meaningful effect. 
Well, thanks, Claudia. I think you're you're truly brilliant and uh, are continuing to do great work. I wanted to end with one final question. You know, we talked a lot at our Society for Integrative Oncology conference recently about healthcare disparities. And, mm-hmm. you know, I think about this a lot in our field because, you know, we can have all these uh, options available, but if we're not able to utilize them in different communities uh, where people have more basic needs, um, then it's it's uh, it makes it difficult to to even have an impact. Sometimes, how do you feel um, that weighs in? Obviously, on 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 our integrative care and and cancer care in general, and is it different in Switzerland, for example, or Germany? where there, there seems to be more universal health care. Do you think that's the solution? Uh, is it the same there, or is this uh, kind of more of an American problem uh, acutely? Yeah. So due to the fact that I work in Switzerland, Germany, and the United States, I really see huge differences here. So we don't have these disparities uh, comparable to the United States. When you have a basic health insurance where most where people are insured, and it's covered within this health insurance, then you have a much lower threshold to have access to these treatments. But um, there are still some disparities because it also depends on your education, on other things, if you really uh, know that these things are accessible for you. And I think one solution also for the United States in the future could be moving more to digital low threshold and free of charge offers here for patients. That's something we have done during the corona crisis. We built up for the Swiss population a mind-body medicine support website. So a lot of mindfulness things, nutrition recommendations, exercise recommendations, relaxation audios are freely available online. And so everyone could use it. And... Most people here have now internet access. I think if we move into this direction and would say we would like to have a low threshold, we, as societies, we would have to put efforts that everyone can have access to these digital tools. Mm. But then we can allow more free of charge usage of these aspects. Great. I think that's really helpful. Well, I want to thank you uh, for joining us today. I really appreciated the conversation. It was a pleasure. Thank you so much, Santosh. Take care.